Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This week, we begin Advent, the countdown to the celebration of the birth of the baby Jesus. But in my family, this week begins the final countdown to a day we all thought was still a good few years away. Dave Cromwell, aka Dad, is retiring from the Dublin Airport Authority. With almost 35 years of service under his belt, I thought now was an ideal opportunity to get him in front of my mic on the Big Nose podcast. In the conversation, we begin at the very start, a story of childhood, the eldest of five and growing up in Dublin in the 1960s. David recalls what it was like to be an introverted teenager in the 1970s, but explains, and maybe surprisingly, how he found himself in Coachella Valley in California in the, for a year in 1980. Before starting his career with the Dublin Airport Authority back when it was airing to, in 1986, he worked somewhere else. He worked in town. He shares a story with me in the podcast of one morning walking into work and somehow finding himself swimming in the River Liffey. When the conversation moves to talking about his time at Airinta, or now the Dublin Airport Authority, the fondness for the organisation is clear for all to hear. David shares his story, his journey, from the cleaning crew with his father Eddie, onto the car parks, followed by the cash office, to finishing now where he is in VIP Platinum Services. His story is one uniquely told by himself. How he grew as Dublin Airport grew, how an organisation on the most western front of Europe became an international hub of aviation and continues to be so year by year. As father and son, we reflect on heartbreak along the way. 35 years of service has not gone by without scars. Those scars, of course, inflicted through firstly the untimely death of his father, Eddie, at the turn of the millennium. A man who, in his own right, had a wordy contribution to life at Dublin Airport. However, David talks candidly of the loss of his youngest son, Aidan, 11 years of age, in February 2008. Dad reflects on the impact on himself, his family, and comments on the strength he found in his work family throughout Dublin Airport. In the podcast, David talks about the changes he has seen within the organisation, the industry and of course within Ireland. He mentions some interesting stories of how all you need to do is shuffle at a pe- as, a, as a penguin to meet the Pope and shake his hand. In truth, when December 5th does come around, Dublin Airport will of course be losing a servant and a valued servant of 35 years. But I feel, after talking with Dad, that he will be losing a great friend of 35 years. I implore you all to listen in. It's a conversation filled with laughter, joy and insight. You'll get it where you normally do, on your podcasts. Enjoy. Well, thank you very much for joining me here on the Big Nose podcast. This week, my father is coming towards his last shifts in Dublin Airport and we thought it'd be an ideal opportunity to sit down and pick his brains about his journey 
from a wee little lad, a ginger curly-headed lad in Dublin airport, to still has the hair but maybe not a, a vibrant a colour. Um, but we want to have a, a look at the last 35 years, both personally and I suppose on a professional level as well as a developmental level. So, I suppose that, uh, or David, or Dave, as you're known in the airport. Correct, yeah. Dave. Yeah. Uh, we'll go back to the very beginning, and I suppose the, the, your early years. Where did it all begin for you? As a wee when lad. I was in the universe. When you were a knee-high to a grasshopper. Or a speck in my father's eyes, I'd say. Is that what or something say? like that, yeah. I suppose my early memory, my, my earliest memory would have been when I was a very, very small child. I think it was about three. And I remember, I remember it, and it was only when I was able to tell my parents a story that it made sense to me. So my father worked in the army, as you know, um, and we moved around a lot. And when I was born, um, we were based down in Kells, County Meath, when it was a real country kind of town. Yeah, for want of a better word. Um, and I remember as a very small child, a dog that we had, at the time, I don't know why I remember the dog, but it was I always thought it was a big dog, and his name was Prince, and it was a Springer Spaniel. Yeah. And that was a very, very early memory, and probably something that stayed with me, because as I've gone on in life, as you know, I love animals, and that dog, for whatever reason, had a huge impression on me at that, at that age, for whatever reason, I don't know why. Tree is a very young age to have your first memory. Very much so, but it was very, very strong. I also remember my first day in school, my teacher, Miss Griffin, I didn't want to go to school. And God love her, I gave her an awful time. And uh, But that's as far back from memories as I can. Um, and you start school in Kells or were you... No, sorry. So after, after I had moved, we had moved at that stage. We moved back to where my mother lived in East Wall. We stayed there for a while. My father went off. He used to serve a lot in Cyprus as part of his duties in the army. So obviously my mother would have been on her own with a small child, so we moved back to my granny's house in East Wall. Then we moved out to Coolock and we've been here ever since. You're the eldest? Of five. five. Yeah, correct. I suppose growing up, you were born in 1963. I was. Growing up in Dublin back then and living, as you said, moving around, but then as more siblings came along, you kind of got more settled and your family became more of a, into, it became more of into a routine. I suppose being the eldest at that stage was you know, it can be seen as quite a, a way to carry. But what was it like growing up with one brother and three sisters? Well, I was very lucky because I had, very, I had a very good childhood. Like, I had three sisters and one brother. I can honestly say we were very lucky. We were blessed. We shared everything. There was no... We always got hand-me-downs. And, of course, it was lucky for me that you I was the because <laughs> I didn't have to have any hand-me-downs. Everything was new. And by the time it filtered down... Obviously, it was a bit uh, rough and ready. And it didn't make all of your boy or girl, I suppose. Didn't make it, not then, no. And my mother, in fairness, sure, was very handy. She did a lot of uh, clothes making and knitting. I can still hear that knit machine going back and forth, back and forth when you had those knit machines. Yeah, we had a very good childhood. My father was very family-orientated. Uh, so much so, like, when he came in from work at four o'clock, he'd fill the car, whatever car it was. Not with just with us, but with any kids that were on the road. And we'd all go down to St. Anne's or the beach or, um, and uh, great memories of that. Even to this day, I still love the beach, as you know. Yeah. 
I suppose, but back then you would look at the size of families. Like your father would have come from a large family, your mother. There was fourteen in my father's family and fourteen in my mother's family. I think it was fourteen. I'm not really sure. And there could have been probably a lot more in my father's family, but um, my father, ironically enough, was the eldest boy in his family as well. Like you know, so uh, and he would have went out to work at a very early age. And education was very important to him because God love me, didn't have much of an education himself, and it was one thing that he instilled in us. My mother would have instilled a great uh, love of reading. So we always had books and we were always reading and it was something that was really encouraged and something that still stands with us to this day. I suppose then, because you were the eldest and like any parent, you know, you were kind of the 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 project child in terms of it was always first for your parents. And I suppose well, I, going into your teenage years then. I wasn't really very good at being the eldest child. My sister Anne was better than I was. So she broke a lot of moulds. <laughs> She was probably a lot braver than I've ever been. Um, she was definitely a lot braver, I have to say. Um, I was quiet, very quiet. Uh, even going into my teenage years, I was very quiet. I probably was very, I was very comfortable in my own company and I was always happy when I was surrounded by animals. Um, that was my thing. I always thought I was going to go on and become a vet or work in the zoo or work with animals. But, uh, I had a great love of nature and all the outdoors and all it brought with it, like, you know. Painting that picture as a person who was enjoying their own company and, and enjoying nature and enjoying maybe the company of animals and wildlife. To decide then, in, in the late 70s and the early 80s, to uh, apply for this scholarship? So basically what happened was when I went into secondary school, after obviously primary school, I went to Cloche de Dulic, as you know, and uh, I did my intercert and then I came up to do my leave insert and uh, in my final year in sixth year I was nominated for a scholarship which was a cultural scholarship so basically um, I went forward uh, through a lot of interviews and um, I was obviously representing the school the teachers would have happened to put me forward for it uh, I went through the interviews was very successful and I got a place and basically what it was I flew, I was very lucky I got California and I flew over to California to a host family and I stayed with them for the 12 months. Um, and you would have been? Totally different world. Yeah, I was 16 going on 17. 17. I was. I flew over in the July, I was 16 and I was 17 obviously in the, in the August when I got there. But in a totally different world obviously there was no, um, you couldn't phone home, it was letter writing. And, so you, you have know. to put pen and paper? Very postcards. much so. Postcards, pens and paper. I mean, we, we did have a telephone in my house, but a lot of people didn't. But even to ring, oh, it was so too expensive. You couldn't call. I think Christmas was the only time I would have rang. It's Just the once, and that was it. One phone call in 12 months? Yeah. A lot of letter writing. Um, I was very homesick. And that was one the one regret I had when I realised after six months had gone by and I was home and, and I'd, I'd been very homesick and I realised the time has gone by I started I said oh here I have to start enjoying this and so it's just taking you back then just to delve into it a little bit more how do you go from the person who is uh, introverted enjoying their own company to actually say yeah I'm going to take this on what brought that along because it doesn't sound to me like it's something that you would have put yourself forward. No, in fairness, it wasn't, and uh, it was a huge challenge. It really, really stretched me um, as a person. But I don't know where I found it. I think that, that I found I found strength in the fact that people believed in me, 
and I was encouraged by other people. And so if people, if other people were seeing it and I wasn't, I must have had something. That's how I, that was my take on it. And off I went. Um, at that time, of course, we flew Dublin to Shannon, Shannon, New York, and then New York into Los Angeles. Getting the air miles. <laughs> well, if only, but um, I'd never flown before. That was my first flight. So you had to get a passport? I had to go through the process of getting a passport. I don't know if I needed the visa. Oh, I did need a visa. I did get, actually, I still have a visa because um, they gave me a permanent visa on my actual passport. And um, there was conditions. There was three conditions. You couldn't drink. Oh, you couldn't drive. In California, you couldn't drink and you couldn't hitchhike. They were the three rules. If you broke any of them, you were sent straight home. And I suppose, as you said, the first six months were very difficult and you may have, probably not, you may have done less in this first six months, but I suppose by that time, the second six months probably were I started to find, Yeah, I started to find my feet and I realised, you know, this opportunity was never going to, I was never going to get this opportunity again. So I really excelled. I really pushed myself out there. I, joined, I did classes that I would have never done before. I joined clubs in the school up to graduation and got really involved in the, the school. The social aspect of it, like you know, and in terms of a culture shock, going from Dublin City in the nineteen seventies, was it? I was kind of struck by the poverty because where I actually lived in Coachella Valley was very close to the Mexican border. So a lot of the high school I went to was ninety percent a Mexican population. I was the minority, and even further than that, I was the minority. I was the only minority with red hair. So and the pale skin. Pale skin. Oh, yeah, so I kind of didn't, I didn't really stick out that much, to be honest. Nobody knows me. <laughs> <laughs> so this obviously then opened your eyes to a world of travel or a world that's outside of Dublin, outside of Ireland. And then obviously coming back to finishing up then in Coachella Valley and coming back to Dublin, getting your leave insert. You're in Dublin and it's the 1980s and the economy isn't going strong. There's a lot of unemployment. There's a lot of money worries around all families. It was a very difficult time to find work. Yeah. Um, but you did find work. And what was your what was your first job? I did at at, at that time when I I had actually done my leaving set before I went, so I got my results when I was in America. And yeah. Then obviously, I graduated in America as well and got me my high school diploma, and then I came back to um. You're right. What you say, it was very doom and gloom. But I still managed. Um, you know it's I don't think it doesn't exist anymore and I don't know what the equivalent is um, manpower I got a, I did a course in manpower and then from there I did a, I did a, um, I, I, I went for a job would you believe in a restaurant equivalent to Kentucky Fried Chicken okay um, and it was kind of um, deep fried chicken basically is it yeah it was called Pat Grace's famous fried chicken it wasn't actually Kentucky Fried Street. Chicken it was up in Marion Row mm. beside O'Donoghue's pub, which is a very famous still there, Irish pub, and it's still there. So I put my time in there, and that was a real eye-opener. That was my first um, full-time job, if you like. I had, worked, I had worked in Dunn stores in school, and I'd also worked in uh, the Black Sheep pub as a bar boy, and that was to get my few bob when I was going to America. But this was my first full-time job, and it was long hours, and it was hard work. Um, but I was there for a good few years now in fairness and I really enjoyed it I worked with amazing people but it was a great opportunity to develop uh, my people skills if you like because it was dealing with people and dealing with customers and uh, I was very lucky I you know I really excelled in that without even realising that I was excelling in like, you know. this stage you were probably going into your late teens early 20s 
I would I would have been coming up to my tw- it was in my 20s 21 yeah. yeah that's right so that was the 80s and is there any takeaway stories that you want to reflect because I know there's one that goes around our family and there's one you always regaled with I know it's a it can be seen as a sad story but I think we look back in, a, in our family as a very funny story about jumping into the Liffey oh yeah so I, I, I used to work um, shift work in the, in, in, and I was going in one particular morning and I got off the bus in town in Marlborough Street I think it was and we had to walk across the bridge to, not O'Connell Bridge the bridge up beside Customs House yeah that one there and God loved me I'd, funny enough I'd met a colleague and I had the keys for the shop and this young fella came over and said Mr. Mr. Um, there's a man at the throne himself in the Liffey and of course I said oh is he and I said I said, I said to the other fellow, I said, look, there's the keys. You go on up and up in the shop. I'll just see what's wrong with the shuffle. He was very distressed. I felt sorry for him. But anyway, as you say, I know it's a famous story, but um, I'm not a great swimmer. I learned to swim very late in life, um, <laughs> I have to say. Uh, and that was purely maybe by accident. It was a case of having to sink or swim, as you say. Um, I went over and sure enough, there was somebody in the water. So I didn't know what to do. I had a choice. I could have jumped in and but there was a lucky enough there was a boat ramp beside where he had thrown himself in but i couldn't see him at this age so i just stripped off uh down to me k well i, I call me kfc me red and white striped short and i jumped in took off my shoes left my jeans on jumped in and i couldn't find him um but then i fence felt something at my feet and i sure enough i found him i pulled him up and i swam with him on his back over to the the boat the boat ramp. Somebody had called an ambulance in the meantime when they arrived, but sadly, he was dead. He had died of a massive heart attack. I only found that out later, and he had thrown. He was a down and out. God love him. Uh, he'd been in the custom house there all night apparently, and then went over and threw himself in. I mean, the weight of him was just unbelievable. Like you know, he was a dead weight in the water. I never forgot his eyes for a long time after, and I did inquire, and he was bur- he was buried. In an, an unmarked grave, pauper's grave, pauper's grave. But then I had to. The, 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 I know you all laughed. The funny side of it was, <laughs> the ambulance guy said to me, "Are you okay?" And I was soaking wet. And I, from from there, I had to walk all the way up to O'Connell Street. And when I got into work, in fairness, my colleague who got there before me had started the process of heating up the ovens and that. So we had a phone in the job, and I, I rang my father and I said to my father, "God, will you bring me in fresh clothes? I'm not to be in the Liffey." He didn't believe me, of course, but. Uh, so you, yeah. went, so you went to work after pulling someone out of the Liffey. I think nowadays if you pull someone out of the Liffey, you go to counselling and everything else. But yeah, it's yeah. a sign. Probably, it's I probably would have needed, uh, nowadays I probably would have needed t- tetanus and everything tetanus. else that goes with it. Like, yeah, you know, the Liffey is probably a bit cleaner there back then a lot cleaner. than yeah. it was now. Yeah. Going then, I, we looked towards moving into the airport because in, 1980, in the 1980s you were moving into the airport. I think it was 86 you yeah. had your first job in Dublin Airport and um, how did you get your, yourself in the Dublin Airport? Well as you know my father had wor- was working in the airport at the time he was very lucky um, so basically at that time the airport had a policy there that looked after ex-servicemen uh, who long service and my father Eddie had served 25 years and he was out of the army a couple of years and he was looking for work applied to Dublin Airport and he was given a job there and uh, they were taking on summer staff and of course I was still working in the fried chicken place if you like and uh, he asked me would I be interested in going for a job and I, I said yeah of course but not thinking I would have got the job in fairness it was a job in the cleaning section in Dublin airport so um, I applied for the job and I got the job and I was told at the time it was only for six months and 
here I am now, 35 years later. And uh, yeah, so I was very lucky. Uh, like I say, I got that job and uh, there was no looking back then. It was a, it was a great step. And so you were kind of joining Dublin Airport, obviously had been around. Dublin Airport at that time would have been seen as probably outside of the county, in Dublin County. It wasn't Maybe really in the sticks as, in well. The sticks as yeah, well. Yeah. And it was probably, it was an airfield with a couple of buildings around it in that state but it was very developing. basic yeah it was, it was a work in progress i'd like to say yes definitely and when you started off there can you remember your first impressions of this or you know to compare it to what it is now where it is the oh, two terminals i just thought i'm going to get lost in here how am i ever going to find where i have to go and what i have to do it was huge that was just terminal one yeah going from a small little restaurant where i had worked to you know working with huge amounts of people and all different people in all different walks of life and in all different fields. It really opened my eyes, like, you know, and uh, huge respect for everybody that worked there. Uh, I was just in awe of it for a long time, I kind of said. I just thought it was an amazing place to work. Uh, had a great buzz about it, and everybody looked after each other. It was really like working with a very, 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 very big family. It really Yeah, was. and I think, like, what, what, the next question I have here is, you know, as you have alluded to, you're not the first Cromwell from your side of the family to work there and there's been a number of including myself and Kerry who's worked there and you, a number of your sisters but your father I think was the first from our side of the family to work in Dublin airport and as you said he got got it because of his service and I suppose that brought in the sense of family where everybody looked after everybody and it's a little bit you know case of as you said yourself there it was it's a it's a sense of a big family but looking at what your father was doing what did your your dad do what did your granddad Eddie well, my father started, ironically enough, we both actually worked in the cleaning section together. Oh, God. But on different crews, in fairness. But he kind of used it to his advantage when he was golfing. As you know, I'm not a golfer. No, not at all. But there was a golfing game coming up that he wasn't on for. You know, at that, at that time, you could swap from one crew to the other. So, like, so he, he utilised that quite a bit. He did better out than I did, in fairness. Um, so, uh, yeah, it kind of improved his social life a lot. And his game of golf. And his ga- oh, of course, yeah, you know, it's of course. All, it's all about that. That's it. You've you've you you've established yourself. You're in Dublin Airport. It's you know you decide then it's a good idea to get married to my beautiful mother. Mm-hmm. Towards the end of the eighties, I suppose it'd be rude of us not to mention mum. No, uh, no, definitely not because it I is be... because mum has been not too far away from you in growing up. Obviously, you can tell that story better than I do, and how you met mum and how you ended up marrying her towards the end of the eighties. Well, obviously, you know, behind every good man is a good woman, as they say, and I don't doubt that for a minute. I've been very, very lucky. I didn't meet your mother. I grew up with your mother. She was my next door neighbour. She lived across the road from me. I live in number 16, as you know, and she lives in number 19. And I wouldn't be the only family member to do that. My sister had done the same. She had married her, my neighbour as well, not Siobhan's brother, a different neighbour. And... um, we often joke and laugh that we met in the prams. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, she was always part of my life, in fairness. Um, she was always there in the background. Uh, we all, we, I went off, we all did our own thing. She went off and, uh, you know, she had her friends and I had my friends. And we kind of always knew that we'd end up together, but we didn't know when. Because, of course, I went off to America um, and then I came back and we were going out with each other and then we like a like a lot of relationships when you're young like, you know we, we, we were going out with you we weren't going out with you and then ironically enough a colleague a friend of ours a na- another neighbor's wedding we 
we got back with each other for the last time and I just said, look, uh, let's stop beating about the bush here. <laughs> let's get married or, you know, we, we know this is, this is what we both want. And that's when, you know, we did finally end up permanently together, if you like, and have been ever since, touch wood. <laughs> Closing the 80s with marriage, the mm-hmm. 90s started kind of a new chapter. Ireland was then developing. I think the airport was also very much developing. I suppose you had been in the airport four or five years as you got married. At that stage, you've married you. You're planning your life as a maybe a family, house, children, what have you. What was your plan looking forward then at that stage of your life? I honestly think I'm a man of simple needs. I just um, once my family and my wife were were happy and they they, had, they didn't want for anything. That you know, I didn't. Uh, I suppose like a lot many a many, many a married man, I didn't put myself first and rightly so. Like my family was what's my my priority. Um, I don't think I was even driving at that stage, or maybe I was. No, I wasn't actually on a motorbike. I would have been working in the car parks at that time, yeah. and um, we bought our first house. Obviously, after you were you were you were born, um, and I, ironically enough, we bought it on the same road. We're now number thirty six, <laughs> so we went from sixteen to nineteen to thirty six, and we're still here to this day. My priorities were, you know, investing in my family. Education for me, probably got it from my dad, in fairness, to give my children a good education and a good start. And uh, as long as we were happy and comfortable, that was the main thing, really, to be honest. Career-wise, uh, I was in the car parks at that stage. Um, I only went to the car... I went for the car park job in the summer after I joined the airport, or maybe a couple of years after I joined... And it was seasonal. I went back and forth a couple of times and eventually I got a permanent job there. It was a big jump at the time because at that time we, op- we, we operated grades in the airport. So I went from a two to a six, which was a huge big jump. jump yeah. yeah. But I was very, very lucky again. I had the right people around me and um, it was great because the car park was developing along with the rest of the airport. It was becoming automated. It was becoming a huge business. A moneymaker. It, it was, was a moneymaker. Well. Very much so. I mean, when you look at the car parks yeah, now, originally, yeah. originally we were, I worked in the first car park, which is outside Terminal 1 on the ground level. I came along at the 90, in, the, in the 90s, Kerry came along then 92, and Aidan came along then 96. So mm-hmm. you were progressing your career at Dublin Airport. You were kind of, you had been in, at by the stage you were of 96, you would have been there 10 years. Mm-hmm. Dublin Airport was developing massively. There was huge investment from the government. And we were looking at that stage in terms of the, the airport, looking towards the next century, 2000. And they were really investing heavily in the, com- in the company. And I think, you know, it was coming to the end of the year of Airinta, as, as they were known then, and they developed into Dublin Airport Authority. That's correct, yeah. Well, I suppose looking at you on a personal level, you had three kids, you had been working with the company 10 years, I suppose. How did you balance the work-life balance? Because now you had three kids, you were demands from that your wife of course you had your own wants and needs in terms of your career progression i suppose how did you manage balancing work life I suppose? yeah it wasn't easy um lucky enough we were in a position that your mom didn't have to work so she was able to stay at home and mind the children that makes a huge big difference but even to me personally knowing that you know the kids were at home with their mother and she got great satisfaction out because it's something she always wants to do and she enjoy it uh, for me, uh, I worked shift work at that time, so and there was nights involved in that. So I suppose you know, in hindsight, um, as hard as it was on me, it was probably a little bit tougher on her. Uh, she was stuck at home with three kids more so than I was because I obviously was working and. Uh, 
but she loved it and she wouldn't have changed it for the world and certainly I was very grateful that you know we were in a position that we could afford for that to happen which a lot of people couldn't do at the time like you know in terms of Dublin Airport had had you seen a massive development in terms of airlines coming in looking towards maybe a new terminal looking mm-hmm. towards a new runway in terms of Definitely. the campus as, as, as it itself was bursting, in the 90s it was really bursting at the seams Definitely, like I mean the, the whole operation just seemed to expand overnight I mean I remember you know being called upon at one time to, to, to operate from where I was working for crowd control you know never thought I'd see the day in, when, Dublin, airport. in Dublin airport you know and uh, huge pressure huge pressure bursting at the seams type of pressure like you know and um, even frightening sometimes uh, of how you know the volume of people that were actually availing of traveling and I suppose looking at Ireland in that in that context we were starting to go on holidays summertime was a lot more there was more money around families were going cheaper off flights the, cheap, Ryanair Ryanair huge influence definitely on the, the aviation sector I suppose 97 for yourself in terms of your personal career progressing you have been there 10 years you've been in the cleaning service for a couple of years then into the car parks and you have been developing all that side of your career and then the opportunity of the cash office came up what memories of that time and that transition do you remember? I remember um, I was very happy in the car parks. It was a developing project, if you like, and I was very I was delighted to be part of that. Like I say, we were pushing towards the automated system and growing at a really fast pace. We're a really good team. And uh, I was really proud of, to be part of that team. We developed a, a great, if you like, customer service uh really really took off Elite like you know that, yeah. yeah you know down to helping people find their cars uh <laughs> there was the occasion when i had to go out and look after someone whose car wasn't there when they came back but it was all a learning thing it was you know it was all new it was fresh and it wasn't just new for you i suppose it was new for the airport it was new for the airport uh, because we, we now had this amazing product that we could develop and it was um you know it was certainly uh a great source of income and it was being identified as that so I was very much uh, part of all that and I really really enjoyed it and so the cash office job came up no experience but I wanted to push myself again and it wasn't because I wasn't happy where I was it wasn't I've never left I've never left any job where I was for just because I wasn't unhappy I probably left more I probably did decide to move on for the challenge I, I excel on a challenge and that's where I wanted so of course I applied for the job. It was only temporary for the summer, and uh, we kind of spent a lot of years in the cash office. And they were great years. Again, I was blessed, and um, I worked with some amazing people, really, really good people and managers. And I developed a skill that I'd never developed before. You know, numeracy wasn't being my strongest uh, subject in school, and all of a sudden here I was, and I was, you know, we ha- I was I was blessed because you know. I was involved in that tr- transition. I know at home it was a joke, but it was uh, six weeks of dual currency. Remember, the euro was coming in, and Italian lira was going out, and you know, pesetas and the German, and all those currencies were gone. And six weeks we ran that dual in the cash office, and it was a huge challenge, but we really got through it. Like you know, and I rem- I'd always remember it. It was the one of the hardest jobs I've ever done in the airport. It was a lot of responsibility and um, but I was glad I had got the opportunity to do it because it did shape me 
for you know the next move I made Destiny. I suppose in terms of my own memory looking back I think I have little memories of the car park I would have been with probably eight when you went into into the cash office and I remember kind of that part really more so than I remember sometimes yeah coming home late at night maybe or early morning after a night shift in the car park but with the cash off it, it was different you feel you really did seem to be coming into your own in terms of you were enjoying it the challenge of it but you're also you also enjoyed the work that was involved in it and the responsibility that came with it because at the end of the day you know the airport was going from strength to strength and your and your responsibility was yeah it was very a very high. it was a very busy cash office we basically looked after um you know we looked after all the duty free and we looked after all the car parks and anything else in between that was um, that needed to be done in relation to the income coming into the airport we looked after all that so you went into it with no experience none and then supervisor role came up yeah sadly um i worked for a great a great i worked for a great team and one of the girls uh, audrey was her name she became sick she was a supervisor and um I didn't apply for the job without even realising it. I was doing the job and I was approached by the company and asked, would I be interested in the role? And at first I did turn it down because I didn't think, um, not that I didn't think I couldn't do it. I honestly thought Audrey was coming back, but now I realise that she wasn't. But I, I was re-approached six weeks later and I then decided, look, I might as well take the job. They made it very, they did to be honest, looked after me really well and made it worth my while. So I took on the role of supervisor in the cash office, along with my other supervisor at the time. There was two of us, and we supervised the whole cash office. So that was, you know, in terms of your own time within the airport, it was a quite a serious role for someone who's been in the, the airport. In the airport for, you know, it would have been, what, 10, 15 years at that stage. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of kudos to you in terms of, you know, the company had seen and seen what you had done in other roles and was willing to put that responsibility and trust in you. Yeah, I suppose really looking back when you're in the role and you're doing the job, you don't think of it like that. You just think, I have to do this the best. I mean, there was no um, ifs or buts. I had to be correct and I had to be done correctly. Uh, so I just do what I've always done, I suppose, in any role I've done. I just did it to the best of my ability. I just got on with it. That's what I do and that's what I did. Um, but I was very lucky in getting on with it, if you like, and doing it to the best of my ability. I was enjoying it. Mm. And after almost 15 years working at Dublin Airport, Arena, Dublin Airport Authority Health, the dawning of a new millennium came. Mm -hmm. And as you touched on, the euro was coming along as well. And it yeah. brought a lot of optimism. You probably would say that the turning of the millennium was the beginning of the Irish Celtic Tiger, as it was. And we all know what happened there. But you, do, yeah. you had taken, just had taken a family holiday of a lifetime to Orlando, Florida. I remember Correct, yeah. well, the three of us there. Yeah, yeah. The three ginger heads sweating in the back of a rental car outside Dunkin' Donuts. That's a story in itself. But in terms of yourself, you were, you had obviously you were coming to a stage now where you had you know your kids were kind of growing up at that stage. They were you know they're they're developing their own personalities. Um, yourself, you were developing yourself within Dublin Airport, your own reputation. I suppose you've been there fifteen years. In terms of yourself, how you were feeling then at that time of the turn of the millennium? To be honest with you, I was enjoying it, and I know you know it. It, it can't be enjoying it all the time, but I really did. You know, um, I always considered myself very lucky. You know, and I was always grateful for everything, and I think if you have that type of outlook, 
it's very hard not to be grateful and it's not it's very hard not to be happy in the role that you're doing i was very very i look at i i will be honest with you a lot of people believed in me and their believing in me instilled then the belief in me if you like i realized well they couldn't be believing in me if i hadn't got it and obviously i had something and I have, if it was the fact that i was enjoying it all the better and that's, I, I understand kind of you don't realize what you're doing and your value of your of yourself sometimes and then sometimes someone who you have respect for comes along and says something to you that you don't, didn't realize and then maybe all of a sudden that gives you the push to go yeah maybe i'm doing this right and this is this is what what, what it is yeah you lose a lot of you know if you're you lose a lot of doubt in yourself if you like yeah and it, that that comes but obviously that comes in time and experience definitely yeah in life of course, of course. It, it definitely does yeah um, so we had just gone away on a holiday in, in 1999 yeah. it was amazing and then the the following year you lost your father yeah. in 2000 and that brought you to a very dark place I suppose personally because your father was also working in the airport and you and your dad would have been well known around the airport at that stage I suppose and you know what was your memories at that time yeah, my father was very well respected and very much loved by an awful lot of people in the airport. And I remember the outpouring of sympathy and support that I would have got at that time. And uh, even now to this day in 2020, you know, there is still people, you know, who knew him and talk very highly of him. And I was always very conscious of that, walking in the airport. Yeah, he was very well liked, Eddie. And but he was a lovely man and he always said hello to everybody and we didn't say hello back. That was their loss, that was his take on it. Um but you're right in what you say, he was very well thought of, um and a great man, you know, a great ambassador for the company too at the time. And in terms of your own personal loss, it was probably the first sense of loss yeah, in your own life. Of course it was, yeah. And nothing prepares you for that loss. And people often say like once the, once the chain is broken it can never be re reconnected and that's true um, very true he was a very outgoing man Eddie and he loved life and it was just so unfortunate that he was taken so early he was only 63 when he died and um, he still had a lot of living in him and a lot of giving uh, he loved his family and he loved his grandchildren and obviously he loved my mother too and uh, life has never been the same since he went the family circle broke and never to be fixed again or never that that person was never replaced no i think because he was such a talisman and a binding person within the family mm -hmm. i suppose and, and that's probably comes from his his army training and his background and his of sense course, of, yeah. of that yeah, yeah. i suppose for you you would have relied a lot on him yeah he was my advisor unconsciously you know, i suppose yeah, growing very up. much so i mean Look, at, there was times when we didn't agree on things. There was times when we did things very differently. The wallpaper incident would have been one of them. Um, and the there was also not. times when, uh, you know, he would have helped me two things. And once he'd helped me, I'd just continue on doing it. So, which he didn't like because he obviously liked doing it with you. Um, mm. But, um, yeah, he was. He was a huge, it was a huge loss. And, and you were really, realistically fairly young. Yeah, I was actually. Yeah, you know, yeah, I was. If you look yeah. at it, you know, twenty years ago, he was very know. much my rock. So you know, he he knew what was wrong with me before it was even before I even knew what was wrong. You know, and he was always there for me. Like you know, it was always torn to him. In fairness, and that was that was really granddaddy down to a T. Mm -hmm. 
looking towards Ireland uh, as a country uh, as economy booming at this stage the roar of the Celtic Tiger was getting louder how did this impact on Dublin Airport in your opinion could you see it being reflected in your day to day role in the cash office as a cash office supervisor yeah definitely I mean uh, we touched on it earlier on I mean people you know at that many many years ago people went on one holiday a year people all of a sudden now were going on two three holidays were flying away for a weekend unheard of like you know uh, people were going skiing so they were people were going away for Christmas you know there was parties of people going away uh, you know people went away in their stag they went away in their hands and um, so travel industry just really shut up like you know people were availing of these great deals and the competition that was being created between the airlines and the lifestyle was to travel and it was to to get away to the sun or to get away to a foreign destination in 2006 you marked 20 years mm-hmm. 20 years in the one company looking back on the first 20 years how do you reflect on how you developed as a person as a professional and at that stage do you think your 20 years in the company you had identified strengths of and traits in terms of your own characteristics or, or what you brought to the table for the company yeah so i will say one thing about the company and that is that it, it, it still is thank god to this day very customer orientated and very and you know it excels i mean worldwide it excels as far as i'm concerned and a lot of other people are concerned for customer service and um, and for me it was a great learning curve and a great place to to learn that skill but what I did, what I do realize now is that it did come very natural, naturally to me, natural to me, and I think because I was in the right company that had that ethos, that developed, it really came out of me and really came on of me, and uh, I'll always be grateful for that. In fairness, it was an opportunity. It let you grow, I suppose. One thing we've spoken about as previously to maybe this podcast is that. And I and myself is in, included is that a lot of our family, if you look at the roles and, and jobs that they do or roles that they take, they're very customer orientated. I've always said, like, there's two type of people in the world. And you, know, you know what I'm going to say. I do. So there's the people who serve and the people who are served. And I'm one of those people who serve and I'm very proud to be. Now, it's funny to say that when we started this conversation, you were talking about being very introverted, enjoying your own a company and I still do and you still do but yeah. I think it's a case of it's not that you're putting on a show but it's no. a ge- it's, a, it's a general interest it's very, in other people it's it's an interest but it's also a trait yeah it's definitely I will say to you uh, coming to the end of my career uh, in Dublin airport I only recently had a meeting with somebody and he asked me you know what makes a good customer service individual and I couldn't answer them because at the time I'd never gave it much talk, but I have given a lot of talk recently. And for me, and on reflection, it's not it's not something that can be taught in 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 the sense of academics. Um I would strip it right back and say it goes back to your childhood. And for me, customer service is good manners. Simple as that. And that's it in a nutshell. And that's taught you as a child from your parents. Yeah, I can't disagree. I think in terms of the academic side, they can give you the framework in terms of developing you into knowing the nuts and bolts and the operational side and understanding that. But in terms of being at the coalface and in, in engaging with people, very much, it's so. very hard to be taught. 
it's yes, impossible. Um, I, I totally agree. I mean, on paper, somebody can be very qualified and have the best of, you know, degrees and they can have, you know, a lot of great stuff on paper, but may not be able to walk into a room and say hello yeah, or good look, morning look at or feet. how are you. People are people at the end of the day. Very much so. Yeah, definitely. 2006 um, saw the next chapter, I suppose, of you in Dublin Airport and it was... I wouldn't say the final chapter within Dublin Airport because you never know. But it was the next chapter. You moved from the cash office to Platinum Services, as it's known now. Uh, I wasn't quite sure what it was known back then in 2006 because I didn't want to say what I thought it was called. Um, but you moved then You moved then from the cash office to Platinum Services. What did you know about what was involved in the new role? Or what Platinum Services, as it is now known as, offered so what happened was uh, the company decided to outsource the cash office we were given the choice um for it to be redeployed um take a package um so obviously my preference would have been to be redeployed but i didn't get to choose i was approached and um the manager of the vip at the time approached me and we went for a chat for coffee i was very interested i never heard of what vip was or um, what it did um, so we had that coffee and I agreed to sign up for six months and I'm still there now 2020 yeah, 14 years later correct yes did you have a sense of what you knew I suppose you call it VIP I would have I would have said I would have wouldn't have been brave enough to call it that but protocol or you know whatever it was yeah like, at the time I will be honest with you it wasn't as commercial as, the, as it is now it was a requirement as I learned obviously when I joined the team uh, to have you know if you like a special area within the airport for dignitaries uh, Department of Foreign Affairs movements as we refer to them now it was a much smaller team a much smaller business in, in that we only had three suites at the time when I joined originally for me again it was a challenge it was I was totally out of my comfort zone I had heard about the, about, about the VIP but I wasn't really sure what was involved? 2006 you join, you get involved with the team, life is looking good, Correct, getting yeah. challenged, 2008 comes around the corner and tragedy strikes our family. Correct. And the sudden death of your youngest child Aiden at the time, aged 11. Yeah. So you've gone from maybe you could be on the high in 2006 to the darkest place you'll ever go to I suppose in 2008. Um, how do you recall that time as a father, husband, as a man? Um, a very, very dark time in my life. Um, you know, the old saying is true, you should never, a, 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 a parent should never have to bury his child. And for us as a family, you're right, it was devastating. It was a, and um, even now, after all these years, it's still very raw. But I am... Um, as a father, um, I'd have swapped places with him if I could. Of course, I would as a father. As a husband and a father, for I obviously had yourself, Pierce, and I had Kerry. Um, I just couldn't, as a man, if you like, understand why I couldn't fix it. And for a long, long time, um, that really, really, uh, really, really bothered me in, 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 in so many ways. 
um, because I hadn't had, I was very lucky um, in that I had never experienced anything like this in my family as a brother or sister. Uh, so I was very conscious of the fact that um, this was something you had to deal with and I didn't have the answers to it. Um, even within a relationship, I have to say, for me, I was just devast I was devastated and for different reasons obviously to your mommy would have been because for your mother um, and I only learned this a long time not long time afterwards but realised um, for Siobhan it was the loss of our, our baby our last and final baby we were we were never going to have any more children we, we had the tree and we were very happy with the tree yes. so but for me it was the fact that he was 11 I was his world, it'd be like I was his hero because he was 11 and that's how he looked upon me um, and no one ever called me daddy since and that was instant, um, it's like his death, I mean he wasn't sick as you know and um, I'll never forget that, fall on the bathroom floor running up the stairs and he was gone um, it was a very black time, very 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 hard time, still is very hard what I would take away from it is that we went from a house with children. Correct. To yes. a house with four adults. Because myself and Kerry were 18 and probably 16 at the time. And Aiden was 11. And he, I think he, he, he brought a lot of life and a lot of youth with us. The whole he house. Did, you yes, know what I mean? He did, yeah. And we would, you know. He was very funny, remember. He was, he, he was an awful. He yes. got, an awful, he got an awful, away with an awful lot, if you ask me. But yeah. I think the youngest always he does. does. Of course they do. And I suppose. For your colleagues in the airport, and I, I suppose you were only in a new team in terms of the VIP, and I know my recollection of their support and the airport support to our family at that time, but I think... I was very lucky, and I don't say that lightly, I was very lucky. I had a great manager at the time, and she was amazing. She was amazing just to me and to my family. Um, you know... Uh, Passion, you know, she was Mary Mary Lee. He was a name, and still is a name, of course. But she was, you know, the company. You know, she she was just, she was right. She was there for me. She supported me. She supported the whole family. The team were amazing. And um, I obviously didn't go back to work for a long time, but the infrastructure was there. But you know, I was able to come and go if I wanted to. And she came down to the house. You know, I had loads of colleagues, too many to mention, and too many um, still to this day, you know, who are still very supportive. And that's maybe one thing that I am going to miss when I do eventually leave on the 5th of December. Um, I have huge support um, in that circle, not just in where I work now in Platinum, but even outside that. Mm. Um, of course, I've worked in other areas since... Um, Aiden died um, it's not something I ever tell people about um, and it's not that I don't tell them about it it's just that it doesn't come up in conversation as you know <laughs> um, and when it does people are kind of shocked uh, yeah because you can know people for years and work for people for years and they not know exactly them. exactly and even in my personal life uh, I had very good friends and they were all very 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 supportive I'll never forget I know you're going to laugh but I'll never forget the uh, amazing support I would have got from as you know the Pigeon Club they were really you know 
Yep. When I was rock bottom, they were there for me, like, you know, and I can never thank them enough for that, in fairness. No, they were they were quite the rock to lean on at that They were, day. very much so. They don't even realise it. And you know what, I think even to this day, when you do have your bad days, and we all have our bad days, but there there is, I think, going back to what you said, even about the airport, a sense of family. Mm-hmm. It's like an extended family, and I suppose being in the airport for 35 years, of you have been now, it kind of there has been people who come along that journey with you maybe on different avenues and you might have come and gone over the years yeah and look that's very natural that's a very natural progression in fairness like you know um and you know people do come in and out of your life at different stages in your life and that's the way it should be really 2008 obviously on a personal level was deeply difficult yeah in terms of ireland it was also very deeply difficult we were going into a recession and you know <clears throat> I know what you're going to say but and I know that you might find this hard to understand but I guess grief affects everybody differently I've no recollection of those years and it's funny you used to say that when people talk about the recession and the troika and the, the three or four years of deep recession and hardship and you know the country in turmoil I agree with you I don't because one we were going through the grief of losing Aiden, and secondly, I was eighteen. I was only starting my journey in the working world, so yeah, you for the first your... time for me, I was getting money into my pocket. Yeah. So I was going from a basis of never having anything to. Well, in, he died in the March, as you know, and in our sorry, his birthday was in March, but he died in the February, the ninth of February, and that was the year you were coming up to Leaven Cert, if you remember right. Yeah. And Kerry Godlover was coming up to our in, intercert, so it had a huge impact going on further on than what you would have taken. Further down the road. And still has a huge impact in fairness. It does still shape it, it, it has shaped us as a family. Um he's still very much part of our lives and our families. Um and that's the way it should be. Exactly. So those years that you're asking me about You don't have any I have no recollection of because they were whatever was going on in the world it was in, in my world it was insignificant. Um and honestly I was just getting by. So I suppose somebody said to me, for example, and I didn't know do you remember the snow? What snow? I don't remember that snow. I really don't. And I feel bad that I don't remember it, but I know now why I don't remember. November 2010 then. So the opening of Terminal 2. That's ironic really because it's 10 years old actually this year. Yeah, only recently there in, the, in November. The last couple of days, yeah. that's correct. Um, in terms of the operations of the airport, and I know you say you don't have recollection, but I suppose... It, it was I do, significant in terms I of do the remember, new adventure for Dublin yeah, Airport. I do remember Terminal 2 being built because I used to walk up that road every day and just see it, like, you know, rising out of the ground type of thing. It's huge, monst- huge monstrosity, like, you know, at the time. Uh, and I used to say, God, we'll never fill that, like, you know, but little did I know that we would. Of course we would, yeah, definitely. New airlines came on. Of course, Aer Lingus, in fairness, moved all their operation over there. Like you know, so um, yeah, it was a huge thing for the airport, in fairness. And in terms of your role, in terms of your operation within VIP. So all of a sudden, um, VIP, if you like, was developing as was well. Was developing, and the role I I initially took on was administration finance. Uh, so all of a sudden, it was starting to grow. And obviously got someone's attention and realised this could be potentially a good commercial revenue uh, stream, for, revenue the stream for the airport. At that time we were under operations. So we weren't even 
you know didn't need to make money we weren't on the radar no. like as a commercial entity and then we moved over to commercial and it just blossomed and bloomed we went from three suites to seven a huge crew became a 24 24 hour operation and uh i've grown from strength to strength there is a huge commercial business i suppose there. looking at i suppose we're jumping ahead a little bit here but in terms of the clientele, and obviously you can't speak specifically. No, no. Totally but, not, you know, totally. you will definitely have seen a different clientele develop as the airport has developed. Yes, very much so. I mean, as you say, it, it is a, a service that, that offers exclusivity. And, uh, well, having said that, um, the people who avail of the service... There's a broad spectrum, a huge big broad spectrum. Then we, the next year, a year into Terminal 2 operations is 2011, mm -hmm. which saw you mark 25 years of service with Dublin Airport. That's right. And looking back on 25 years, you know, we were looking at cleaning in the, at the start, moving up through the car parks, cash office, and now, in the, as you say, the VIP. How do you look back on those 25 years as a whole? Well, I obviously enjoyed them because they flew by 25 years, you know. I blinked and here I was all of a sudden, um, if you like, obviously older. Um, <laughs> obviously for, you know, for what happened in my life, I was quite um, content, actually. I suppose that's maybe a strong word to use, but I was quite happy as to where I was in life and where I was going. And obviously very proud of my family and where we had come and how we had dealt with what the blows that life had given us um, so I had no um, I suppose my expectations were that I was going to be you know working for a lot much longer time obviously in Dublin airport the, I was going to develop my career um, even then uh, I was still looking for a challenge and when that challenge did come along later on I jumped on it of course I did 2011 was a big year in terms of visits to this country by dig dignitaries as you would have dealt with then and in 2011 the Irish president I suppose Barack Obama American Irish as mm -hmm. he was the what did he say that it was never such an important comma in the Obamas than in Obama does that stand out in terms of a visit for you the Obama visit and what your memory of that day and working on that movement look um, I guess it was very, I wasn't that heavily involved in it um, but I suppose I would have been in the background and as a team, as a VIP team, a uh, platinum team, we did a crunchy and the airport very proud. Yeah. I think the airport, it would have been DAA now at this that stage, stage yes. uh, did a country proud. And it, look, it was historic, of course it was historic and it was good to be part of it. I suppose going from one historic person to another, I remember where I was when I saw the footage how did you end up shaking Pope Francis' hand? And what are your memories of that visit? Look, you know I'm not a very religious person. Um, and no disrespect to the Pope. Um, and it was a great, it, again, it was great to be part of it. The country was, it was great. I think we, he came at a great time because he gave us all a lift. And um, so basically, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you the story in a nutshell. Um, Please do. Yeah. My colleagues were keen for me to go out and see. Uh, the Pope was flying from Knock to Dublin, and then he was flying back to Dublin and flying back to Rome. And ironically enough, 
the plane he was actually on was called uh, St. Aidan. So obviously I always say to this day, this was meant to be. I went, we went out uh, to see him going off to knock. Uh, he went off to knock and then I didn't want to go back out again. Um, but I went back out again when he came in again. And I don't mean that to sound ungrateful because I wasn't. It's not, not that I was ungrateful. It was just that... Um, it was a long weekend. There was been a lot of work. Yeah. So anyway, when we went out the second time and he was going... He come up. He was going to go back on the aircraft to go to Rome, and all the journalists were going to be travelling yeah. with him. Uh, we went out, but we were only there to oversee it really and to be a presence. And of course, I, being me, um, decided we should get nearer to the steps of the airplane by doing the penguin shuffle. So <laughs> we'd sidestep and sidestep and sidestep, and as you can see in the photograph, I'm the first person in the queue for the sidestep sidestep so obviously you were the rest, reading it the rest of them were <laughs> go, the rest of them were going to follow and um we got to the steps of the aircraft and i knew somebody did, i i knew somebody there at, who, we won't who was claim at, them I won't mention it, who was at the steps as well now at this stage remember we were on the opposite side never expected to happen what happened and uh i remember watching him and he was shaking hands with all the politicians and you know, saying his goodbyes and uh, for whatever reason he broke and he came around and uh, God, I'm going to get emotional now. He, uh, he came over to us and we were all kind of, we didn't know what to do, like, you know, and he shook, he shook my hand and then he shook all my colleagues' hands and I don't think we were able to talk. And you all got back into the piano and cried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't planned. It was just one of those totally things that really stuck. Totally spontaneous. Because I think when I... Down to the Penguin Shuffle. And of course, penguin shuffle. then we were getting the calls. You know, people who had seen us on the television. Yeah, and... I think from my mind, I was sitting in this very room. We were recording. And at that stage, at that time, the TV was in here. And I, mum was in doing dinner. And I was sitting here. And we were all... The whole country was watching the Pope leaving. Yeah. And Leo Varadkar was there and he was shaking the hands and then the camera turns and then you are standing beside an airport police officer. And I think you were the second or, or the last person to shake his hand. And I can't remember. I just remember he shook our hands. And, that was... and it's actually up there on the photograph. Yeah. In and in room. fairness, you know, they sent us the photographs as well. Like, yeah, know, and I think, nice it, I think as a family, it was quite an emotional weekend. Yeah, seeing Aiden's name yeah, on the side yeah, of the plane. Yeah, and just little things. That, as you said, you're not the most religious person in the no. world. Myself and God have had many an argument. And, and probably rightly And probably rightly and so. And will continue to. In the past two years in Platinum Services, you've developed somewhat a new role for yourself. Can you explain what that role has been over the last 18 to two years? 18 months to two yeah, years? Yeah, look, I honestly thought I was, in a, I'm, I was going to be part of the sales and booking team and, you know... I still am a part of the sales and booking team, and that's where I'll end my career at Dublin Airport. But I was given the opportunity. Um, the manager approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in stepping out of my comfort zone. And when I say stepping out of my comfort zone, I was stepping out of my comfort zone. So this was a challenge again for me. But I had no doubt about it because I really, as you know, and anyone that uh, you know, I've worked with, I love Platinum Services. I think it's an amazing product. I live and breathe it. And uh, this basically was um, corporate sales for Platinum Services. So it meant I was going out on the road. 
I became an ambassador, if you like. I went out and uh, we did showcases all over, all over, all over the country, um, at events for Platinum Services. Um, it was a huge challenge, um, but I loved it. I really enjoyed it. And you know, we don't advertise Platinum Services. It's not actually advertised. It's not a product that advertises. And we're very lucky in that 98% of our clients, once they've used the service, will return. And I always enjoy hearing, you know, back from people and saying, same, they all say the same thing. Um, why didn't we hear about this before? Which is great accolade and fairness, like, you know. Um, but it was an amazing opportunity, a lot of time on the roads. I was very lucky to work with a colleague of mine, um, Maura, who's also retired this year. And... Uh, yeah, we really um, excelled and we we're really good at it. Like, I you know, suppose as really a swan song, it kind of really quite high to go out on in terms of... Yeah, look, it was an amazing app. I'll always be very grateful for it because I didn't honestly think... Um, I honestly thought, like, as happy as I was in the role I was in, I thought that that was it. You know, I, I have to be realistic yeah. and realise, like, I'm 57 now, so, There's you know, much. there wasn't going to be that many opportunities. But when this opportunity came up, it was supposed to be only for six months fame's last words again it ended up, <laughs> we've used that a few times four, I know but I'm only realising that now where it ended up being for 14 months I know and it's it's a credit to you and a kind of a testament to you finding I suppose over a career what you're really really good at in terms of the customer service knowing your product and being able to communicate that on a personal level and I think in fairness to the company they gave you scope to do that and that was great even you were at this stage you were 33 years and in the company Mm-hmm. to give that role or give that challenge over to somebody who was quite developed in their career with the company was something that was you know in fairness to them they did they could have went for someone young book to sell stuff yeah all, but, but again think, you know it's 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 like i've i've I, I've, I've probably referred to this a couple of times it's where you know somebody saw the potential and realized god that's the very person we need to do that mm. you know and Look, it's like everything else when you work in a team of people, and it's particularly a small team. We all have strengths. It's identifying those strengths, but it's also, you know, being able to encourage that yeah. in somebody. There's still a lot of people. The, the team that's there at the moment um, are all very new, and I wouldn't say, like me, they have huge potential. It just hasn't developed yet. Looking at this year... Uh, off the back of what you've done what you've done in the last 18 months will probably be very important going into the next 18 months once we're out of this COVID-19 to drive the sales mm-hmm. I suppose in the 35 years of service with Dublin Airport and in aviation and hospitality have you ever seen anything to affect the airport like COVID-19? No is the answer um, 9-11 9-11 was horrific and very sad we obviously stepped up our security, we addressed it and we looked after it and we're still at that stage, of course we are, and that will always be important. Security will have to be obviously important, is important. But no, um, a virus attacking the nation, attacking the world uh, and having the impact it's had. But look, in all situations, because we're human, we adapt and we will adapt and we will live to learn with this. I mean, bringing a, in a vaccine in such a short period of time has been a great achievement. And, it, you know, for a lot of people, their priorities have changed. They look at life differently. And that can't be a bad thing. 
I think travel will definitely change um, uh, in, in the sense that it'll be a lot safer, if you like. Cleaner. And the environment will be cleaner. Mm. Uh, and it'll be our job to reassure people that that is the case. Yeah, which Definitely. is not a bad thing, I suppose. Not at all. No, it's not a bad thing at all. I suppose looking at the industry, and I suppose in the last couple of years, you've got a better sense of what's out there in terms of industry, hotel, hospitality, tourism and travel. What does the future of, of tourism and travel look like post-COVID-19? I really think people are looking forward to travelling again, just for a change of environment, just for some type of normality. And I think, that, you know, I think they will. They will, of course. They will. They'll be back on those airplanes. And I think and as, an, be back as an island, because they want to. Yeah. You know, we're very. We, there's only we uh, as beautiful as Ireland is, and you know we have a lot going for us. Um, we want to be family. There's people who want to. You know, it's in our nature to travel. We're an island. We're in, yeah, very much so. And we've travelled all across the world. There's nowhere right in the across world. all the continents of the world. You know, there's nowhere in the world where you bump bump into somebody no, else when you're travelling. I think Definitely. it's in our it's in Irish genes to yes. to travel, and I think. You know, we will get there again. And I'm not just talking about the leisure industry, I suppose, or the commercial industry, but like I'm also talking about the corporate industry. There's nothing as does we can all do what we're doing now, but there's nothing, you know, you know, there's a lot to be said for sitting in a room, speaking to someone face to face and being physically able to shake that person's hand and getting a judge of someone's Very character. Much so, yes. Yeah. yeah. Looking towards December fifth, it's what? Ten days away now at this stage? Yeah. Um, how do you think you'll feel walking out those doors one last time? I'd be very proud of where we've come and I know that, you know, it'll 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 go on to succeed. Definitely. Uh, platinum is going nowhere. I suppose it's like a lot of, t- you know, life being life, um, you can't be part of something forever. But at the, I, my veins, I always feel, run through the airport. You know, I, I just... I'm not going to be able to switch that off. It'll always be, it'll always be in my, uh, it'll always be in my heart, you know. And we're not living too far away. No, we're not living too we're far away. The planes. Of course, we're looking. Um, I've been very lucky, very very lucky. I've worked with some. Ama- I can't emphasize enough. I've lo- worked with some amazing people. I'll always be grateful for that. But how do you think you'll feel? How do I think I'll feel? I just, I don't think I'll think it's real. It it probably take a long time for it to sink in and realize, I won't be going back there. Because the next time you go there, you'll be as a traveling person. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, unless for unless something develops between now and then, or in the next couple of years, um, that certainly will be the case. Yes. Yeah, the door's not shut. It's just oh no, just a jar. It's just a jar. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. Actually, yeah. The 5th of December is coming and we're looking at 35 years of service within one company, which probably going into my generation and generations coming after me won't no, be there. Right. I suppose reflecting on Dublin Airport, be it the Dublin Airport Authority, be it Arena, what is your kind of takeaway from being within a company for the 35 years as an organisation, I suppose? An amazing organisation to work for both you know on a personal level and a development level and I don't think when I was starting all those years ago I thought I would have done as well as I have done and for that I'll always be grateful. I suppose you only start off with six months 35 or 35 years later it's uh, it's, just let's say it's been a long trial it's been a it's been 
been a very long trial. What standout moment do you take away from working in the airport? I know we've touched on the Pope, but is there something that you say, you know, I know when I was growing up, we were always brought up to the airport to look at the Christmas lights, which will always be something I, I, I do myself and I hope to do with my kids because I think you had a lot of, I remember, I think I remember correctly, you had a lot of love for putting up lights in the airport and getting involved in your office and doing, putting up decorations. Yeah, anywhere I would have worked, I suppose, I kind of started that type of thing, like we did Christmas tree. And I was very lucky, as you know, in the last couple of years, I kind of fell into it by accident and I didn't even know I could do it at the time, but I was asked to do Santa Claus for the Cromwell's Children's Hospital. This would probably be my last year to do it, but... We obviously can't do it the same as, you know, a child will come in and we'll talk to the kids. So this year we've come up with a plan to do um, video messages. Very good. So that's what we're going to do this year. But um, that was a great, that was another opportunity that I never saw coming. Um, I had been asked in the beginning if I would be interested in doing it and I didn't think I was up to doing it. And then I fell into it in the last couple of years and yes. I, re I really enjoyed it. And my take on that is, as far as, and I know people just say, God, how does he do it? And my take on that is, you know, that's me giving something back. And that's my interpretation of it. That's what helps me. I love doing it. You do, and I've, I've seen it firsthand. And, and what the Crumlin do, and, and, and what all the, what the airport does, in fairness, and what Stobart do in terms of taking the kids out. Exactly. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's, it's a great it's, day. It's a great day in, in all the pain that all those families are going through. It, it really is. I suppose looking post airport life not getting out of the bed to go to work you know um, adapting to having no schedule how do you think you're like you're 57 years of age you're not an old man no and to be honest with you um, I do intend staying within the industry so I will say that to you um, not on a full time basis I will not be doing anything to the new year I'm going to have a really nice family Christmas that's the plan uh, I have your wedding to look forward to in April um, as you know, uh, my brother has purchased a pub in Tenerife, and I do plan on going over there next year sometime for a month maybe. And obviously, I'm going to develop my hobby. One of many hobbies, I suppose you have. Yes. So I will be still out flying my kite on the beach, my stud kites. I will be still heavily involved in the garden, as you know. But more importantly, uh, because of my success, ironically enough, after 25 years, this year, uh, I will be spending a lot more time in my pigeon loft, which a lot of people don't know about, but there you go. So yeah. I keep racing pigeons as a hobby and have done since we moved in here all those years ago. Yes, and I suppose you've touched on it there, so we might as well we'll bring it out. Um, who'd have thought in the year, the same year that you retire from Dublin Airport, I suppose? Yeah, I think there's a message in there's there somewhere. There's a message somewhere. in there is the year that you finally got a pigeon home from France. Yes, and you were here to see it, yourself and Niamh. And Do you want to tell I... us about that day? So I was working that day and I'd sent two pigeons to France, two hens and uh, a blue and a checker. And I was working. They'd been let out at 7 o'clock, I think, that morning. And I came home at 7 o'clock. And sure enough, um, I was sitting at the back garden and yourself and Eve arrived, so I came in to have, make a cup, make a cup of, tea. of tea, and we were sitting here talking, I think, in this room, and in the corner of my eye, I saw a pigeon on the landing board, 
and well the rest maybe you could tell because I suppose um, we were sitting here and, and I think first instinct was that you were having some sort of episode a um, heart attack a heart attack yeah. probably uh, and you I think you had had the sudden onset of shakes and the, the blood drained from your, your face and, and the worry was the pigeon wasn't going to come down onto the timing pad and you were running out towards say hello to it and you were going to scare it off but lo and behold the bird went in like a hot snot as they would say yeah. and uh, you went in to the board and checked her checked her and she was fine and and yeah I never I, I never I think the week before I had only slagged you about having shy pigeons every year I've been getting slagged for the last God knows how many years but she's out there now and she's a pride of place and uh yeah, she gives me hope for the future. And that's what it's about, hope for the future, post-COVID, post-retirement. Now it's a case of Very looking much. to the next chapter. Little did I know that something so small could mean so much, and it did. Well, I want to thank you for your time this evening. It's oh, been very insightful it. uh, to sit down and have a chat. I know I've grown up with you, obviously, and I knew a lot of the stories, but even tonight I've learned little things, and I think the podcast allows people to have a conversation which I think is very important to have in terms of just kind of sitting down and getting getting to have a chat with somebody which in this day and age sometimes isn't isn't done as often as it should be. Exactly, I would agree. And in relation to, you know, learning, I've al- always said, you know, when the day is the day is stop learning, that's it. That's the end. So you should really learn something new every day. I think that's a wise words to end. Thank you. Thanks a lot.